Welcome to Point Two Law Review. My name is John Brown. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we're here to talk about the uh, week. Why do I always do this? You, you think part of my you think prep we would, would know. You think well, part well, of my. Well, well. I know it's Arbor Day. I know courts are closed. So 28th, but technically these opinions dropped on the 27th. So I'm going to, you know what, in your defense, oh, thank you. it's 25th and 27th <laughs> this week, not 25th and 28th. Okay. Because so. of Arbor Day. Arbor Day. Plant, plant a, tree. a tree. Yep. That's what we're supposed to do? Exactly. I'm not going to plant a tree today. I'll, I'm going to, it's a confession. I'm not. I'm not, not. not on purpose. I'm not intentionally doing it. I just don't have a tree. I don't have anywhere to put don't one. Worry, yeah, don't have anywhere to put one. That's always a key. I don't know. What else is going on in the world? I don't know. I don't. Um, NFL draft was last night. For the people in the sports world, you get that little spring game was last week. So anybody who wants that little taste of football after we've been without it for a few months. Did you go? I've gotten that. No, oh. I did not go. It was it was kind of sloppy. I didn't oh, watch it. I didn't. I didn't watch it. My uh, son went to the UNK spring game, which was uh, at the same time, and then he wants to go to another spring game. Oh, well, that's exciting. <laughs> There's only one. He's like, "Is there another one next week?" I'm like, "No, sorry, you're done." Time to go watch practice. <laughs> exactly. Let's go watch those. All right. Ex parte summary from the Nebraska Supreme Court. What do we got? State versus Cox post conviction relief. Uh, bowling versus Tecumseh Poultry res judicata. Wow. And a uh, Latin term in the executive yeah, summary. Yeah, why not? That's... Hey, look it up. Okay, okay, sorry. Sorry for you modern people. Claim preclusion. <laughs> All right, let's get okay. it started. Uh, so starting out with State v. Cox. As I said, this is a post-conviction relief case. Um, the facts here are the underlying case was a first-degree murder, use of a deadly weapon to commit a felony, and possession of a deadly weapon, um, you know, fairly... Uh, onerous um, beating of the facts as they go through here. Um, but the main thing outside of the normal post-conviction uh, relief cases that we um, usually hit here that I will note is that there is a little bit of an interesting discussion here on the jury instructions, which is always a point that uh, trial practitioners make. It's kind of important to uh, understand jury instructions and deal with jury instructions. And here, um, the jury instructions were a bit conflicting in that some of the jury instructions seem to instruct on premeditated murder, while some of the other jury instructions seem to instruct on felony murder. And uh, it seems like here the uh, Cox made a fairly strong argument that you know that that was a uh, good cause that um, you know there could have been confusion could have been issues uh, but here the Supreme Court says that when you take all of these jury instructions together um, they uh, you know essentially work and they're not likely uh, to cause confusion or um, they're not enough to be in error uh, but they do have the jury instructions there and they talk about um, the differences in the jury instructions uh, the jury instructions that were offered by the defense um, and essentially you know the standard for what uh, we need to have to uh, have error um, if jury constructions are so likely to cause um, confusion so here I think that's kind of the the valuable point that I pulled from that everywhere else is similar discussion that we see in the post-conviction cases but uh, that jury instruction nugget uh, was kind of interesting there at the end but this case uh, was affirmed all right Kimberly Bowling versus Tecumseh Poultry LLC Nebraska Supreme Court 
This is uh, kind of a convoluted procedural matter, uh, which gets us to the res judicata um, claim preclusion issue. Um, so Kimberly Bowling worked for Tecumseh Poultry um, in southeast Nebraska um, and was terminated from her employment after um, some issues that went on at her employment. And then alleged, well, it, this is one of those things, like eventually she was convicted of some things otherwise, uh, destroyed some property, I believe, or, or something was convicted of uh, and was charged with some felony matters. Now she files a civil claim basically when those uh, criminal matters come up for malicious prosecution. And she files it against Tecumseh Poultry LLC and saying that they made up these things so that I... Uh, couldn't uh, that so that I would be maliciously prosecuted they're responsible for this and they're responsible for my attorney's fees now that was dismissed in Johnson County and that was uh, dismissed with prejudice after a 30-day dismissal order because it kept going on and on and on because the criminal matter was was delayed so it kept going on eventually the civil court said okay you got 30 days to do something or file something or we're gonna dismiss it on the 31st day it was dismissed now it was dismissed with prejudice with prejudice is important here. So that was during the criminal prosecution. The day after the, or the same day as the dismissal order was uh, issued on the 12B6, their uh, failure to state a claim, and it was dismissed with prejudice, they filed a motion to vacate and all these other things saying, hey, we talked to uh, the, the attorneys for the poultry LLC, and we were gonna do something, and we'd just like you to, to not do this. So um, the, that was denied. So. Cut to the end of the criminal trial where the uh, Ms. Bowling was acquitted of some matters and they were uh, convicted of some misdemeanor matters. And then they file in Lancaster County. Now Lancaster County says, um, takes judicial notice of everything that happened in Johnson County and says that we cannot do this again. Uh, we already could have done did it in Johnson County and then so it is res judicata or claim preclusion so we are precluded from uh, talking about any more claims here uh, in this matter now there's a good discussion here of what is a final uh, final order and what would be a final order for appellate purposes uh, after ruling on a motion to alter and amend uh, because that was done here uh, following the initial 30-day dismissal and the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court says um, in that first claim in Johnson County, after it was dismissed after the 30 days, um, you could have appealed that. You did not appeal that. Because you did not appeal that, your claim is now prejudiced and you're barred from filing anything in Lancaster County. And so um, the trial court here in Lancaster County who, fo who found claim preclusion and said it was barred um, and dismissed it was affirmed. That's it for that's Nebraska. it. Supreme Court done. Supreme Court done. Okay, on to the Court of Appeals then. And the first case we come to is State versus Rashad, and this is a speedy trial case. Um, and the primary issue here, of course, these speedy trial cases become uh, pretty one factually important, and two sometimes they can become factually convoluted because it involves lawyers dealing with two things: uh, calendars and counting, which sometimes can be uh, difficult areas for all of us, especially the counting piece. But Amen. Um, here, uh, the primary uh, concern is not the calculations of the calendar. Everybody seems to agree with that. Um, the main issue is that the court had continued this case uh, because the court had a scheduling conflict 
with another trial um, at the same time in district court, and that was uh, essentially the one um, issue that pushed this case beyond the speedy trial uh, clock. The other issue here is that we didn't have a very uh, thorough record, which lots of times in these kind of cases you can have happen. You know, there wasn't a ton of discussion on the record as to exactly why this trial was scheduled, uh, why uh, Rashad's case shouldn't have been scheduled first, why, you know, the court chose to take up this other case, all those kind of things. Um, And so essentially, the Court of Appeals says that good cause was um, shown that the district court didn't err in um, saying that the speedy trial was told because of the docket congestion, which uh, can be a uh, factor for uh, tolling speedy trial. Uh, the other thing I will note that they did in the body of the opinion is um, talk about the difference between a constitutional right to a speedy trial and then the statutory right to speedy trial and the way that those two things are handled differently and um, how the constitutional right to speedy trial is a factor test that you have to uh, look at various factors from the record and and things of that nature but then that um, the statutory speedy trial is essentially um, just an element test of are these things um, present or are they not and so I thought that was kind of interesting that they're two different areas um, and so they discussed that and then there was a dissent on this so while it was affirmed there was a dissenting opinion and um, Judge Welch here is um, the dissenter, and the big issue on dissent is that um, essentially there wasn't enough information uh, to show that there was good cause to not have taken Rashad's case up first before this other trial that the court bumped uh, his case for. And here the uh, court is saying that, yes, um, good cause can happen and, you know, you can move this for that, but that a substantial preponderance of evidence must support uh, the court's finding of that good cause. And here, uh, Judge Welch does not believe that that was present and that Rashad's case um, should have been continued. So uh, for any practitioners looking at speedy trial cases, I think this is a helpful case. And, you know, speedy trial is such a difficult thing, especially here. This was um, in an area where, uh, you know, judges weren't sitting regularly. And so it was an issue of when are you there? When are you you able to take up these dockets and um, deal with this? And so um, here we had, uh, you know, Rashad trying to essentially say that 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 shouldn't be a thing and that, you know, this this should have been discharged. But the Court of Appeals says, nope. 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 All right. Um, Good movie, by the way. Nope. Great. You seen it? No. All right. That's good. (laughs) But I, I take your reviews. Please do. Thank you. Okay, so I have Cottis v. Barnett. This is a. Uh, Court of Appeals decision. Obviously, this is a civil child support modification case. It was ultimately reversed. So this is maybe one to take a look at here. There were several modifications uh, revolving custody and child support and and other issues. And then the latest modification was filed in 2020. Um, They got uh, a trial date, got close to trial, and then they stipulated to provisions regarding custody, basically maintaining the joint physical and legal custody that they had. But they still went to trial on um, child support and related issues, um, uh, attorney's fees and and, uh, child care expenses and things like that. The issue was mom is 100% disabled after a work injury, so she didn't work, and dad kind of switched his jobs. He went from um, 
a construction kind of thing over to farming and he started spending more time farming for sale at a local co-op and he was operating at a loss on his tax returns and he was basically subsisting himself from parental gifts. The bank statements showed that he was making, bringing in between $79,000 and $100,000 a year in income, whereas the tax statements showed a loss. So there's a discrepancy there depending on uh, basically how he changed his jobs and for the court to decide uh, whether he is you know, making less money to affect child support or whether he's, it should be imputed some kind of child support or some kind of income for child support purposes. So the um, trial court says he is, um, or they're going to use his number for child support purposes. They're going to impute like a lower number for him and they modify child support. They might modify child related uh, expenses and care and they issue that mom appeals. And um, as a side note here, the trial court issued a letter order, which is not part of the appellate record. Letter orders cause appellate problems. This would cause me very much stress if, if this were to happen. So a letter order is issued and says, parties draft an order. These, this is what I'm going to order. This is what I've ordered. Um, draft an order for this. So that happens on a certain day in January. Now the order isn't prepared and everything isn't signed until something in February. And for uh, you to file a motion to reconsider, tolling the time for appeals 10 days after the order is issued, but before is an order here, the 10 days, let me back up. The motion to alter or amend or motion to reconsider was filed after the letter order that isn't part of the record. So when deciding what is told, this could have caused a lot of problems is what I'm saying because the order doesn't happen until after uh, the motion to um, reconsider is scheduled and everything like that. So it, it, it seeks substantive uh, alteration of a judgment. It's a, a motion to alter or amend and that would toll the time for appeal. But because that letter order wasn't signed at the time it was filed, I think you could probably argue that there, there was nothing that they were doing. Thankfully, they cleaned all that up. They didn't find a jurisdictional problem here. And they said, okay, it was told until the final order on the motion to reconsider, motion to alter or amend. So that was the time that 30 days started for them to appeal. So that's the procedural jurisdictional issue. Now for the child support issue, they reversed. And they reversed because, and I think this is the important piece, um, there was no evidence uh, showing that a modification prompted the um, change of child support. Now he, they said he willfully, it was a voluntary reduction in income by him choosing farming and making less money um, at least on paper purposes, so a voluntary reduction in income, and so that was his willfulness that did that, which is not a material change in circumstances that would warrant a change in the child support amount. And the pleadings only requested a modification of custody, and a change in circumstances is a required threshold in order to modify custody or child support or things like that. Now, as another aside, I get into a little bit of uh, struggle with this because they're they're wanting things pled particularly. We've had that a, a few times uh, in the Court of Appeals uh, these past few weeks, and I thought we were notice pleading, you know? I thought we were too. So I, I don't know. It just seems to me like 
uh, we're, we're asking for very particularity in the pleadings in a notice pleading state. It just seems uh, weird to me. So the uh, Court of Appeals here reverses, finds there's an abuse of discretion to modify the child support, goes back to the old child support amount because there was no uh, finding of a material change in circumstances, which also relates to the child-related expenses and other items. So that is CODIS v. Barnett. Okay, next case we have is in the interest of Johanna G. This is an appeal from a termination of parental rights. Um, You know, same things as far as um, statutory factors for termination and then uh, best interests. The only things that I will note here is that uh, this was a case where the individual had had, had had, had substantial time uh, beyond uh, what she you know may have you know actually possibly uh, been allowed or been entitled to to essentially rehabilitate and uh, work through the case plan goals and essentially failed to meet those things and so uh, the court was um, you know very I guess critical of that or noted that that you know there were things here that would have um, you know offered up maybe allowing some more time or uh, were in the best interest of the children but essentially here uh, it was just a little bit of uh, too little, too late, and sometimes that happens uh, with these cases, and the Court of Appeals affirmed. Okay, State v. Coder. This is a plea-based conviction for theft and distribution of meth. On appeal, he alleges excessive sentence and ineffective assistance of counsel. He was given a consecutive term of 12 to 15 years on his methamphetamine distribution um, conviction and four to five on the theft. Those were um, within the statutory range, so they were not excessive. And they also claim here that it violated the Eighth Amendment for cruel and unusual punishment. That was also um, not substantively dealt with. They simply said it wasn't really raised on the um, trial court level, so they didn't need to look at it. For the ineffective assistance of counsel claim, they claim that a failure to investigate defense regarding that the motorcycle that was the subject of the theft was allegedly loaned and that the uh, trial counsel didn't uh, get a treatment bond. Um, and then there was no plea um, to that uh, leading to a conviction that, ma- um, that uh, in, uh, corresponded with the facts is, is what the, allege, uh, the allegation was for ineffective assistance of counsel. So the uh, Court of Appeals here says, well, there's no information regarding those statements that says how things would have been different. There may have been, you know, who knows? There's not anything in the records that says one thing would have led to another thing, but whether it would have led to something different, if you would have uh, taken it to trial or you would have had this information, that's not in the record. We can't deal with those ineffective assistance of counsel claims. So the uh, trial court here was affirmed. Okay, final case we come to is State of Nebraska versus McGee. This is an appeal uh, from the Douglas County District Court. where McGee is arguing that his case, um, that the district court should not have denied his request to transfer uh, these proceedings to the juvenile court. Uh, The underlying case stems from a uh, shooting in which uh, McGee was um, alleged to be one of the participants um, in a uh, shooting into a residence in Omaha. Um, And here the court goes through all the various statutory factors, which we have outlined um, in uh, various 
uh, other episodes of this pod, um, and so I won't dig into those again. Uh, I do think these cases are, are helpful should you have one of these issues come up, uh, simply to look at some of the facts and the way that they tend to lean. Uh, this case was a, a bit interesting simply because McGee had been uh, part of the juvenile system for a while, and so there was quite a bit of testimony and evidence that was able to be provided uh, from probation officers and other uh, youth staff that you maybe don't get in some of these other cases. Um, but the uh, result was still the same, and uh, there was no abuse of discretion in the Court of Appeals affirmed. Well, that's it for another week, right? Another week. All right, we'll see you. See you next week when we'll be there on a Friday because there won't be an Arbor Day to deal with. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, this has been Point Two Law Review. My name is John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. Go to episode one and look at the disclaimer. And, um, oh, this is brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt, offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. And have a good week. Have a good week, everybody.